And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books? Nonfiction? It's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. Hello, welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. I am Maggie. And I'm Harmony. And this week we are talking about Woman, Race, and Class, an Activist Perspective by Angela Davis. This is an essay that was based off a talk that she gave, a keynote address actually, at the 4th National NWSA Convention, which was given at Humboldt State University, a place where Harmony has lived and is probably very familiar with. So not the same as the book, the six-page essay that preceded it. Yes. And this was given in the 1980s, it says, right? Yeah, I think it was 81 or 82. Wonderful. 82. Yeah. All right. So I guess before we get into it, this was my first time reading this essay or this speech. Maggie, I believe it was yours as well. So do you have any first impressions? What What are your first thoughts coming off of this speech? My first thought when I finished it was that this was one of the best essays I've ever read. My second thought, though, was that it was really frustrating how just how poignant it still was today, 40 years later, even down to the point about the president who started B-list movies and things like that. It was scarily similar from my perspective, at least to the situations that we're still dealing with today in terms of intersectional women's rights. Yes. What really got me was the, she repeatedly through the essay talks about, towards the end, mostly about the need to denuclearize. And that was, that was a big one for me, (laughs) given where we're at when we're recording this. I completely chose this essay because we knew we were going to talk about Angela Davis because she's a big communist figure and we're still talking about leftism and I don't like talking about old white men. So Angela Davis is a nice alternative. And I picked this essay because she gave this speech at Humboldt State University, which I love and is, you know, not my alma mater, but holds a special place in my heart because I used to live three blocks away. I agree. It reminded me a lot of hood feminism, too. All of the concepts she brought up were concepts that Mickey Kendall was talking about in her 2020 or 2019. I can't remember when that book was published. Book, and not much has changed. So given that context, Maggie actually apparently knows a little bit about Angela Davis and her background. No, I know a lot about suffrage, which is one of the main arguments that she talks about here she uses suffrage as the example and that's why I was saying that I didn't want to get lost to the historical context of what she was talking about versus like her main points okay I'm sorry I thought that you had references to Angela Davis and her work within suffrage I guess or the woman's civil rights movement in the 70s no I just have even more context than what she offers in the essay about because she uses, to, to, to back up for listeners, she makes a lot of her arguments in this specific speech 
based around the women's suffrage movement that occurred and how that ended up being a very white upper middle class lady sort of situation. And one of her arguments is that when black women were involved or if they had been allowed to be more involved in that movement, she thinks it would have moved a lot faster because figures like Sojourner Truth, for example, who is mentioned in this essay multiple times, were really well versed in public speaking and in political speaking because of their work in abolition. So that's what I've got context on not necessarily more about Angela Davis. (laughs) Oh, okay. Well, Angela Davis is a really popular civil rights movement activist. She's a well-known communist. She fought for a bunch of different things, primarily in the 70s and 80s, but she's still around today fighting the good fight. She talks a lot about prison abolition, and she's a badass bitch. And I chose this essay in part because I knew she was a well-known communist and feminist speaker who's still talking and still makes a big impact on our politics and our writings about topics like women's studies or topics like communism. And Maggie, I think, has a nice little definition for communism for us. Well, it's not necessarily an official definition, but whenever I talk about communism and people ask what my thoughts are on it, I always sort of define communism as being the public ownership and public sharing of property and goods, where everybody works according to their needs and their ability to get what they need out of life. And I think that one of the major sort of, like, it's a misunderstanding about communism. That's not quite the word that I'm looking for. But I think that people think that it's very, a very sparse lifestyle. But I think that for most people, part of what you need out of life is comfort and enjoyment. You know, it's it's not just work according to your needs to get the bare minimum. It's work according to your needs, at least in my mind, to get everything you need out of life. And that includes creature comforts and enjoyment. It's just recognizing the fact that you don't need multiple billions and the ability to go to space to have those creature comforts and enjoyment and things of that nature. But Maggie, I'm so sorry I'm doing this to you, by the way, because I know that you just said that you can't <laughs> handle words. But but Maggie, if if communism means that the public owns property and shoes or, or production <laughs> or goods, does that mean the government is going to be making our shoes? Because the government never makes good things. <laughs> that's That's the argument against communism. Not yeah, right fair enough. <laughs> I mean, no. Uh, Like, I guess that's the thing. No, I think that's another misunderstanding about communism is that it it doesn't necessarily have to play out that the government owns and makes decisions about every single little thing in your life. It's just so that people can't privately hoard six houses to themselves and mega yachts. Yeah, so communism doesn't even need to mean having something be publicly owned does not necessarily need to mean that the government owns it, though that is a form that that could take. Worker-owned stuff. Yeah, worker-owned stuff. There are worker-owned businesses, I think is a great way, for me at least, of conceptualizing what public-owned property means. And it Mm -hmm. doesn't mean that, hey, I'm living on property, now anyone can live on this, in this house that I'm living in, right? That is in some ways, personal property, but also it, it means that when you die, somebody else can come. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that you can hoard it and keep giving houses to your heirs. It mm. means somebody is going to get to live on that, that space. Yeah. 
Yeah. That was better. Thank you. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) That's what little I know. But anyway, so that's relevant because in this essay, Angela Davis actually says towards the end, I'm a communist. But leading up to that, essentially what she's doing is she's just telling people about intersectionality. She doesn't use that word, but she points out that women and white people need to understand that oppression that doesn't seemingly affect them, like racism, white women in particular, white women need to understand that racist oppression actually does have consequences for them. And she states that it's the wor- it's a myth that we've had from corporations, essentially, telling us it's, it's a way to divide the working class that race matters or that we shouldn't white white working class people or white middle class people should not care about black people or people who are racially marginalized because then it's easier to exploit us right because then at least we can say well we're not the most marginalized and when you think about it if we really think about it right it's kind of i mean that's that's kind of true Right? When we have conversations about minimum wage, this doesn't necessarily have to do with race, but at least we can say, like, the reason we don't want the minimum wage to be raised a lot of the time is because we don't expect our employers to also raise our wage in turn. We don't want somebody who is a janitor or working at McDonald's to make the same amount of money that we make. Or at least that's what I heard a lot when I was first entering the workforce. And minimum wage arguments were being had. Yeah, which is, I mean, of course, a pretty problematic take to begin with, because there's not actually such a thing as unskilled labor. But that is the general lie we've all been packaged and sold. And the nugget of truth within that lie that makes it palatable, I think, and swallowable to so many people is that most employers in our current capitalist society won't raise the minimum wage and then in turn raise the wages of everybody else, right? So that's that kernel of truth there that everybody holds on to in this larger lie. And they're kind of swallowing it down as one whole horse pill instead of kind of breaking it down like this and seeing what's actually going on. It's this myth that we have to accept hierarchy because that's the natural state of things. Mm -hmm. And we need to be in some upper level of the hierarchy. So those people who might be more oppressed in some fashion than us were less likely to care about their needs or the, their oppression. But that's not actually a very, that's not a very good ideology. <laughs> Davis is arguing not simply because of moral reasons, but because it actually enables us all to be oppressed further. And it means that we're not mm-hmm. getting things we need, like white women aren't getting childcare. Mm-hmm. Or white women happen to benefit, actually the most, I believe, from affirmative action. So when we raise one group of people up, things get better for everyone because we're fighting for just human rights. Yeah, but more specifically, when we raise people up from the out- outermost margins, so to speak, to use common language that's used to talk about it, that's when we raise everybody up versus when we just look at the people who are closest to the top of the hierarchy already and raise them. Yeah. Another thing that I found really interesting that she talks about right in the beginning, and then she alludes to a little bit in the end of this essay, is information and how 
she she opens the essay talking asking students ask because she's a keynote speaker she opens it asking her audience whether they've heard of certain people and these people are all black women who've made great contributions throughout history and very few people have actually heard of them and davis says on page six and why don't we know about Catherine Ferguson, who opened what was probably the first inter sex-integrated and race-integrated school for children? This information ought to be readily available. Why is it lacking, even from so many accounts of women's history, not to speak of the larger history of our country? Why is it that our knowledge is so often lacking, also with respect to those white women who have understood the interconnections? Why is it that Prudence Crandall is not considered to be a major historical figure in this country? So she opens her speech setting up why we have information gaps, which for me as a librarian was really exciting in kind of a nerdy fashion. But essentially what she's saying is that we don't talk about these things. We don't talk about these women because they represent intersectional struggle because they're fighting for multiple fronts and multiple things. And she kind of, I think, this is my my reading, I think that she's she's framing solidarity as a, a movement or an idea, as something that the media and the government is purposefully trying to stomp out, which I think is true. And we have a lot of examples throughout history, but they're not necessarily super present in this essay. I mean, it is present because we don't know about these people. But she's really, she's, this is the 80s. This is before a lot of the conversation I've seen about information hierarchy has come out. And what she's doing is she's saying, hey, you don't know this. And I need you all to question why you don't know this. It's not your fault that you don't know. But let's look at some of these institutions and push back against them because they're not giving us what we need to be good citizens. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think she goes even farther than alluding to a certain extent. A couple paragraphs before what you just read, she also says, but I also mentioned their names because the lack of knowledge regarding what is happening in the movement, the progressive movement, the movement against racism, the activist movement, and the lack of knowledge with respect to those women who have made important contributions to our history of all, are all indicative of trends that go way back. So I think she she's pushing really hard, I think, against this idea that the information that we are fed, especially through our school system, is filtered through a bias, right? And I think that a lot of people know that today, but I don't think that we all necessarily think about the ways in which that bias and that filter is pervasive in every single part of our society, which is something that I think about a lot in my geeky moment, because I am a historian at the moment, and I work for a museum, and I'm the curator, so I'm in charge of interpretation. So all I'm thinking about all the time is whose perspective am I telling here? If it is the dominant perspective, how am I questioning it and pushing up against what it's saying? And if it's not the dominant perspective, how am I sharing it? How am I making sure I'm doing that ethically and equitably and things of that nature? And in theory, that's what historians have been doing for decades, but in actuality, they haven't. And it's because of this really, I think, pervasive lie that goes out about lots of marginalized communities that because history in the past was so white, cis white male dominated, those are the accounts that we have most of 
today or, you know, something like that. Like that's the historical evidence we have. That's the perspective that we have to push. And I think what's so exciting today and what Angela Davis also alludes to here is the fact that it's becoming more mainstream to call that bullshit out when we see it, to think about artifacts in a different way. And also, and I think most importantly, and part of what makes this speech so exciting to me, is really honor the value in oral storytelling and oral history capacities, which has been prevalent in communities of color literally since time immemorial, especially thinking about Native communities, but is the way that information is passed down in communities of color, in queer communities, in all different kinds of marginalized communities that aren't necessarily based around the written word or artifact keeping in that way. And when we're able to even look back at a speech that was given 40 years ago like this, where Angela Davis is literally passing down her wisdom about historical fact, we're able to have a much more comprehensive information and media landscape that gives us tools to question everything else we're looking at. I mean, snaps to all of that. Just to kind of re-emphasize some of what Maggie's saying, history wasn't, I mean, as a monolith, history was not primarily white male dominated. It wasn't a primarily cis-hetero narrative. It's just that we live in Western society and the world is predominantly globalized and we've been trained in Western society to so heavily prioritize written narratives. And Mm -hmm. many of us only speak English and only have access to English narratives. So we're getting this very slim percentage of all of the stories that are out there, just like there have always been trans people, just like there have always been gay people, just like there have been entire civilizations of people of color, just like white some white civilizations were predominantly oral orally motivated in their knowledge keeping all of this exists we just don't prioritize it anymore because what ended up happening was that the english went and colonized a bunch of people and now we live in the united states which is from the english and yeah (laughs) yeah and it's i mean i could go on forever about the multitudes of ways in which this ideology plays out, but it goes even farther beyond just the written word. And it even goes down to what we keep and what we get rid of in our own homes and what knowledge we find valuable and what knowledge we don't. And a lot of times historians don't realize the gaps until centuries and centuries later. And we look back and we say, wait, we actually have no idea what a condiment that used to be kept on the table for most households in the mid 19th century was because nobody bothered to write it down because it was used primarily by women in the kitchen and also used by people working in poverty or in the the working class at that point. So nobody thought that that information was worthwhile to keep at the time. And now we see the ramifications of that centuries later. So it's, it's a really pervasive idea that doesn't just affect how people look back on things, but also affects us in the moment when we think about what's worth keeping and what's worth saving. I think this is really interesting going back to the essay because Angela or or the speech, Angela is talking about this from an activist perspective. And I think that she's arguing that this limitation in terms of what we find valuable in terms of knowledge keeping is really, as I've said kind of before, what's preventing us from enacting solidarity. It's what's preventing us from seeing intersectionality, even though this is the 80s at this point, I believe, when did intersectionality as a term become a thing? 
Oh, that wasn't until 1989. So I guess Angela, I looked this up earlier too, just the quickest side. What Angela Davis is talking about with the media reminded me a lot of Manufacturing Consent, which is an old white guy text, Mm -hmm. but that was published in 1988. The term intersectionality didn't come out until 1989. So Angela Davis is sitting here talking about all these things that at this point, there aren't even words for yet, (laughs) which is really fascinating. But yeah, she's just trying to explain intersectionality, which should be pretty obvious because the concept that somebody can be both black and a woman should be obvious to people, right? She references Sojourn Truth, who's just talking about, ain't I a woman? Hey, you're talking about how women can't do things, how they can't step over puddles without your assistance. But I don't have that experience because I'm a black woman. I've had to work and... I'm still a woman, so I prove that women are capable of these things. So she's able to fight for white women's rights simply by by being more marginalized, which Angela Davis says. I don't know where else I'm going with that, but it's it's very interesting how this knowledge keeping is... It, it, I don't feel like there are actual conspirators up there being like, oh, we're going to make everything super hard for people. But at the same time... The way that our societal structures work, it really does seem that way. It really does seem like people, somebody was like, I'm just going to make it really hard for anyone to succeed. And then they did. Well, I think that that, you said so much good stuff there. So I think the first thing that really struck me was the intersectionality aspect, because I also had that question when that term was first used. But then I had to stop myself because I had to remind myself that the idea, I think, of activists being ahead of their time is probably kind of bullshit, and that these concepts and and thoughts and ideas have always existed. It's just whether or not they've been part of the mainstream or been part of traditional research facilities. And I feel like Angela Davis is the perfect example of that, right? She's been saying this, I, I mean, clearly long before the early 80s. It's not like this was her first speech. She was the keynote speaker. The second thing you said that really struck me, I forget now. (laughs) The third thing, though, oh, no, I do remember the second thing. (laughs) The second thing is, I think that's something that Angela Davis talks about a little bit here as well, is that you can't decide, and Harmony and I have talked about this a little bit on the podcast, too. You can't decide for somebody else what oppression looks like or feels like or what experience they get to talk about or not talk about. So when she talks about Sojourner Truth in this essay, she talks about the fact that people at the at the convention, white women at the convention, didn't want her to speak because they thought she was going to turn it into an abolitionist issue, right? They had prescribed onto her that all she was capable of talking about was about abolition. And instead she came out and she and she gave the 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 quote, ain't I a woman? And so I think that that was really important, that hierarchy works in such insidious ways that it also makes people who are outside of certain experiences feel like even when they're working in aspects of activism, that they get to decide. They're the arbiter of truth and justice and get to decide for you what you get to speak on when it's your lived experience. And then the the third thing is that maybe in some ways that is a little bit of a conspiracy, but if you look back in history... There was a handful of people who decided that they were going to actively make things really hard for others, right? And we're just seeing all the ways in which that's playing out now. And I think that sometimes differences in oppression, I mean, there's so many different ways, but we see, I think, in some ways, less effects for white women and sexism because the pushing for white women 
against sexism probably started and got more mainstream support from other white men earlier than it did for black women, as we're seeing here. So we're seeing the ways in which when a decision was made by one fucked up white dude, essentially, way back when are trickling down now to make life difficult for others today. That's interesting. I don't want to get too off topic, but in the future, we should explore that. We should explore whether whether we can trace it back to one decision and one person. Because I feel like, even though that's what ended up happening, I feel like there must have been more mental gymnastics and more factors at play, maybe from like people's various societies, right? We had monarchy before colonialism that helped contribute to our current social structures. But it is fascinating. And there definitely are some confirmed conspiracies out there because, hey, apparently I found out the other day while reading Dean Spade's Mutual Aid that when when the Black Panthers were giving breakfast to, to students and children in their communities, like free breakfast programs, the police went and peed on it. They, 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 that's what they did. They did this really vile thing to disrupt it because they did not want Black communities to have power. So we do see conspiracies come up over and over time and time again. So <laughs> I think it becomes a what what came first, the chicken or the egg situation sometimes. But I think it's interesting to think about. I think about sometimes trials and tribulations that Native populations were put through and the genocide that Native peoples were put through. And it's hard to say, right, what came what came first. But then you also can look back and say specifically, well, if Andrew Jackson specifically as precedent didn't make a lot of the decisions that he did, how would have things looked different for Indigenous populations today? So there's this interesting balance that you constantly have to be thinking about between societal expectation and prejudice and bias and how that drives people forward. Because obviously a lot of people put Andrew Jackson in power versus the individual actions or laws or thoughts or speeches of people who do have a lot of power in the world and how that either continue to drive those ideologies forward or things like that. So you're right that that probably is a different episode, but I think that that's something that I often think about and struggle between when I think about, I don't know, the terrible things that have happened in the world that have led us to such a society of hierarchy today in terms of what is... What is individual responsibility versus societal responsibility? How do we all navigate that? I read a really interesting book recently called The Whole Picture by a woman named Alice Porter. And she started the her nonfiction work, which was all about museums and colonialism with museums, saying that she doesn't believe that people can inherit guilt, but she does believe that people can inherit, inherit responsibility. And to me, I think that idea starts to address some of that. But I will leave it there for right now. Well, to kind of bring that idea back to the text, I guess, because I was also, as you were talking, thinking about responsibility and individual responsibility, which isn't necessarily the point of this essay. This point of this essay, I think, is about solidarity and coming together. But I think that puts more on us us as, like Maggie and I, as people who are white and who want to be feminists, or on any of you listeners, because, you know, there are always going to be experiences out there that we lack that we should be 
trying to fight for, you know? We should be trying to denuclearize the world in terms of weaponry. We should be trying to make sure that everyone has housing, that everyone has the ability to live a free and autonomous life. I think that idea about what comes first in our society, I think that just puts extra honest on us to look at our biases and try to be really honest about them and try to deconstruct them because we're not really able to consider other people's experiences and how their experiences affect ours and how we affect them without doing that. And I think that's kind of Angela Davis's call to action here is to be like, hey, your biases have effects (laughs) and other people's marginalization and oppression affects you too. No, I think you're totally right. I mean, her essay is about solidarity, but the call to action here is about is an individual call to action. The call to action kind of paragraph here says, so let me appeal to you, my sisters, to acknowledge the dangerousness of these times, and each of and every one of you should acknowledge your own special responsibility. If you allow yourself to be counted, if you impart your knowledge to others, it is going to be necessary to keep vigilance all the time against racism. Don't let any of your colleagues or comrades or sisters make a racist statement without calling him or her on it right there. Not because you want to criticize them, but because you know the only way we're going to be able to get our business taken care of is if we purge our movement as much as possible of the terrible influence of racism. So call to action there says that individual responsibility is what leads to solidarity. And I think the rest of the essay also really supports that idea because it's about questioning knowledge, which only you know what you know and don't know. And using that knowledge and finding your own gaps to be able to build a better, more intersectional world. I love that. And I think that that's, you know, listeners, I hope that that's what you're trying to do in your reading. I think that's what we're trying to do in our reading, even if we don't always succeed. And that's okay, because at least we're trying and we're looking at our biases and we're trying to learn more. So that's, I think, the first step. Yeah, I think so too. And I mean, I think that Angela Davis's point is all about I mean, the last sentence of this speech really speaks for itself, right? It is your responsibility, our responsibility, to acquire the kind of consciousness that will allow us to create a strong, militant, solid, united movement for the liberation of all women. And I feel like that's exactly why I read. That's why I like doing this podcast is because that is both an individual responsibility, but also a collective responsibility. There's no way for me to go out and learn by myself everything I do and don't know I get that from conversations and I don't just get it from conversations with Harmony. I get it from guests that we bring on the podcast. I get it from experiences I have in my everyday life, my personal life, my professional life. But I think that the power that education gives you is at its most potent when A, you are taking it for yourself and taking control of your own educational destiny when you can, but then putting it into context of everybody else's knowledge and seeing where you can go from there. I agree. I think that when you have information or a story to tell, it's generally a good thing to share it, right? And that doesn't mean that you can't be open to learning new perspectives. But I think that we should restructure our information and media culture to be a little bit more collectivist in that we're not just sharing for likes and and commodity, but we're sharing to get feedback and to learn and as an exchange. That's Mm -hmm. one of the things that makes things like stories and books so amazing. And that makes 
listening to podcasts so amazing, right? Or or scrolling through TikTok. For me, I'm in the the very positive TikTok circles. And so <laughs> part of what makes it so great is the uniqueness of content that comes across my page and how much I can learn from it. That's pretty beautiful. One thing before we wrap up that I want to ask you about Maggie. We talked mm-hmm. a little bit about this at the beginning, about how it feels, how this essay in some ways feels, to to borrow Angela Davis's terminology, bleak and dismal. Because she, she well, I'll read this. <laughs> she talks about at one point this sort of solidarity and how, okay, we can look forward to a world in which sexism and racism and homophobia and ageism and all the oppressions we see around us can all be eradicated. And she talks about how this is going to be a, a long struggle, but she's also talking about things like the eventual passing of the Equal Rights Amendment, which has never been passed. We, we just had a show about that a couple of years ago, still hasn't been passed, or fighting for abortion rights, or the fight against, you know, attempts to make it harder for Black people to vote, or even... <laughs> The denuclearization of countries in terms of their armies and weaponry. And none of that has happened. And so I wonder, looking back at Angela Davis's legacy, of which I'm not an expert, and I don't think Maggie is either, though she can correct me if she's wrong, or if I'm wrong. But looking back at this legacy, what do you think the importance of speaking about this is at at this time and period? Because we're here, we're 30, 40, 40 years, yeah, 40 years into the future. And a lot of this is stuff that we are still struggling with. But what has changed, do you think? What has changed? Well, I think that slowly but surely we are getting more people on board to this message. I think that that's the biggest thing that's changed. And I think that when you have a message of unity and collectivism, that's the thing, right? Angela Davis's call to action here is that we all need to get on this goddamn train. And I think that there's a balance to walk when, I mean, I can only speak to my own societal upbringing as a white lady, but I think that a lot of us are not naturally trained if you're raised in that societal context to think about change that is coming in the future. So I think that the more people we get on board now, the more that all of us might live to see some really meaningful change. But knowing that speeches like this that happened 40 years ago birthed more movements and more really wise thinkers and more speech makers, which spread the message even farther, which got more people on board. I think that that legacy is really important and valuable because slowly but surely we're all hopefully going to come to this understanding of of a united movement for equality for everyone. And so I think that every mind that's changed to think in a more collective attitude is a win and should be counted as part of the legacy, to me at least. And maybe that's easy to say when there hasn't been a lot of concrete change, it feels like, but that is how I feel about it at least. I agree. I think that even as we were looking at terms like intersectionality or looking about when manufacturing consent came out, we can see that since Davis's speech, language that is almost that that has become more mainstream and more universally understood 
was solidified in our consciousnesses, right? Even in the late 80s. I think it's hard because at the same time that progressive movements are gaining this language that helps us understand these concepts a little bit better, and a lot of conservative movements also gain new language (laughs) and new ideas that helps consistently regress our our cultural our cultural push towards towards progressivism and that's where the civil war comes in <laughs> no not again <laughs> sorry i don't think we're that there was a yet. dark joke <laughs> but i do think that overall we have seen wins in some cultural movements and i think that it's just it's up to us it's up to us to keep to keep sharing to keep sharing that information to keep hey asserting listen you can be both black and a woman (laughs) i know it's crazy (laughs) but there is that it is true that you can have multiple experiences and i think it's also important for us to acknowledge as white women you know cis white women that it's easy to say that some of these things feel like wins when we're not the people who are suffering most under the weight of oppression I also, I feel like I'm struggling as well against, I don't know, so much of what's called for here is national legislative change. And that's really important and really necessary. Don't get me wrong. But I also really want to think as well about ways to quantify important changes or think about important changes that happen that aren't just necessarily related to governmental structure and legislative change. Because I feel like there has to be some way to talk about that. It's just not, it's just escaping me at the moment. Or maybe there really isn't, and everything really is just as shitty as it was 40 years ago, and I'm just very lucky to be born in the body I was born in. (laughs) I mean, I think as people that live in places like Seattle and New York City, we see now versus maybe in the 90s, maybe, I don't know, more movement and more push, or I guess even since the pandemic, we see more push towards mutual aid groups. I think for me, the problem is that during the time when Angela Davis made this speech, there was probably an even greater movement towards things like mutual aid and towards collectivist action that was happening on a community level that got stomped out. And I guess I just don't know enough about history to know about that. And the thing is, communities outside of the communities that Maggie and I were raised in especially communities of color have been doing this sort of collectivist work for I think forever. (laughs) Yeah. I guess I just don't know enough to quantify it, but I do think that regardless, there are cultural quantifiers in the fact that more people are talking about this and the fact that we see it more in school and the fact that people, even though this is a contentious topic, in the fact that people are fighting against critical race theory being taught in elementary schools. And is that really being taught in elementary schools? No, but hey, people are talking about racism more in elementary schools. My experience is that seeing what college undergrads are taught now versus what I was taught in college not that long ago is different and noticeable. The language that I have now is different and noticeable. So I do think that we are getting pushed forward in some manner. And I do think that people's understandings and ideas are also getting pushed forward. Even like, I know this is like a very basic thing, but like the mainstreamness of homosexuality 
and, and then it feels dismal again because like i said the the right is also <laughs> um coming up with their ideas and language and now we see all of these this big influx of book bannings happening in recent years so it's hard but i do think things are changing and i do think solidarity is happening and i think that the only way to move forward is to keep sharing information and learning and working in sol- solidarity action in in groups and keep talking to people who think differently than you and hoping no it's true <laughs> it's true <laughs> and, I, can, and I guess like one last thing that I, I one last thing that I, I would call to think about which you reminded me of harmony and maybe this is a baby brain to take but I'm gonna say it anyways is I think that a lot of us in school share a very similar or at least people who I know who also went to public schools share a very similar lamenting about history which is that If we were lucky in history class, we got to the, if we were lucky in history class, we got to the 1960s and then we stopped, right? And I think maybe we should. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I learned nothing. (laughs) I think maybe we should think about why that happens, right? Because a lot of the reason you're told is because early history of the country is more important or that like you just ran out of time in the school year. But let's reflect on why our curriculum is set up that way, why we value history that happened in the 1700s to be taught every every single year that you're in school versus a history that's more recent. I think it really just goes to show exactly Angela Davis's point, which is that you have to take your education into your own hands. And this isn't a call out post to Harmony or anything for saying she doesn't know that much about this part of history. I don't either. So maybe that'll be my, I, we aren't really doing homework anymore, but if I had homework this week and what I probably will do is look more about what was happening in the <laughs> 80s with both the civil rights movement and also the women's movement, as Angela Davis calls it, because I don't know that much about the context that all of this was happening in. And that's purposeful. That was not accidental. <laughs> yeah. Yep. All right. Well, that's uh, I think that's a good place to wrap up, Miss Mags. Yeah. What are you reading, Harmony? I'm reading a lot. So I finished Star Daughter and I also finished How to Find a Princess by Alyssa Cole, which was delightful, Maggie, and you should read it. And it's funny. I very rarely read funny books, but this was funny and I enjoyed that. So I'm currently reading a book that I'm not going to mention on air yet because it hasn't been released yet and we have not done our interview and we will not be doing it for quite some time. I'm also reading The Inheritance of Orchidia Divina a novel by Zaradia Cordova. That's a good one. Have you read that? Mm-hmm. Orchidia Divinia. I have indeed. When I'm finished, we need to talk about it. Yeah. Because it's so up my my alley and I love it so far. I'm also reading A Cuban's Girl A Cuban Girl's Guide to Tea and Tomorrow, which I thought okay, so here's the issue. I this this is a delightful little book i think that i my school library that i work with in in the high school might own it which is part of why i'm reading it but i really thought going in that it was going to be queer it was going to be my queer romance bedtime novel and i don't mm. think that's true and that's right <laughs> i don't know why I did this maybe google did this to me i feel like google must have so that's disappointing and what else am I reading? I'm still reading You Are Here and I'm still reading Teaching to Transgress. What about you, Miss Mags? I am reading Jade War by Fonda Lee and I'm reading The School for Good Mothers by Jessamine Chan. Ooh, what's that? It is, it is a book 
Sorry, it's a really intense, make you think, very angering book, which is the point of it. That's about a mother named Frida who essentially loses it a little bit after a divorce and leaves her 20-month-old baby at home alone for about 90 minutes. And she is caught and the law and child protective services get involved. And she becomes put in essentially a surveillance state to ascertain whether she's a good mother and is eventually literally sent to a school to become a good mother to her child. And that is the premise of the book. So it's uh, it's really terrifying and really scary because it just feels so real. It's also the... The main character is also of Asian American descent, so it also deals a lot in, in this intersectionality between race and womanhood and motherhood specifically in this book. But it's also really scary because it's probably less than a hop, skip, and a jump from what's actually happening right now in terms of the ways in which we police parenting and parenthood. But it's interesting, too, because it's also a novel that... If you just heard the beginning premise of that, most people would probably look at that mother figure and be like, oh my God, she's a terrible, awful human being. How could she leave her baby at home alone for 90 minutes? Blah, blah, blah. So in that sense, you're sort of getting a flipped perspective because our main character's perspective and the one that you feel for and you're rooting for and you're empathizing with, if you had just heard the story in in the headline, you would probably automatically have been trained to villainize, right? So Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. That sounds like something we should read on the pod someday. I think so. I'm only 25% of the way through it right now, but I'll let you know what I think when it's over. Okay. Very cool. Do you know... Here, wait. I'm, I'm going to pull it up. Do you know what we're talking about next week? Because I don't Next think week I is a do. break fun episode, and then we're reading Mexican Gothic. Yay! Okay, lovely. All right. So I guess that's it for now, folks. Goodbye! Bye! Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash RGBC and clicking the support this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to our website rebelgirlsbook.club and clicking read along with the show. You can follow us at rgbcpod on Instagram, at Rebel Girls Book Club on Facebook, at Rebel Girls Book One on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously. Rebel Girls Book Club is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts.